Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be in the book of Romans, continuing in in our series this morning. As you're turning there, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, uh, my name is Trey Corey. I have the opportunity over the last year and a half to serve as executive pastor here at Grace Bible. Uh, My family and I, we've been attenders here at Southwood since it opened in the summer of 2007. Been on staff here at Southwood for the longest time. But in the last year and a half, kind of transitioned to a new role. And so my role often involves a lot of the things that are churchwide across our four campuses. Uh, one of those things that I've been involved with, just to highlight and give you guys an update as well, is something we've called Project 4x4. We rolled it out on Sunday, January 21st to you guys, and kind of as a reminder, uh, we've looked across our campuses and highlighted a project at each of our campuses. And so Project 4x4 is an initiative highlighting four projects at our four campuses, trying to raise a million dollars for those projects over the next four months. And so what we want to do is just kind of highlight those again for you guys. As a reminder, these projects aren't necessarily anything cosmetic. Uh, or kind of uh, unnecessary. They're often really foundational and significant from an electrical infrastructure at our Anderson campus to here at our Southwood campus, our parking lot. You may have noticed some drainage issues as you walked in. I had to choose my path carefully. Uh, Also had to clear off drains so we don't flood the building here at Southwood. And so we have parking safety issues, drainage issues that we're trying to address here at Southwood. And we'd like to address those things more quickly than our budget would allow. And so we've kind of highlighted that and tried to put that out in front of you guys. As a reminder, it's a million-dollar project that we're trying to raise for across our four campuses over the next four months. Uh, Almost a month in, we're about 10% in terms of that goal. And so kind of want to continue to encourage you guys and highlight that for you guys if you guys would be willing to pray towards that and consider giving towards that over and above your regular giving. We would greatly appreciate that as you process as to what the Lord has for you. We're going to be in Romans 11 this morning, and I will tell you as we jump into Romans 11, I can typically tell a a person's life stage or family stage by, in a sense, their movie-watching tendencies. For those that are single or dating or married with no kids, you typically live in a movie-watching mode of existence in which you can watch 50 different movies at any point that you want, right? If you want to see a movie over the weekend, if you want to see a movie at night, you can go and do whatever you want whenever you want. At some point as you make the move into young family stage as a married couple with young kids, you move into a stage in which you're not watching 50 different movies, you're watching the same movie 50 different times, all right? Uh, As we walk through that phase of life, which uh, staff continually remind me I'm no longer in, I will tell you the number of times we watched the movie Frozen, because it was popular when our kids were young, is an ungodly number of time, right? I I can sing the songs, I can put it in play in my head without even turning the movie on. Whether it was Frozen or any of the iconic Toy Story movies, those movies kind of dominated our home in that phase of life. We've now kind of moved from that young family phase to the kind of phase of having older kids, which means this. There are 50 different movies we can choose from, but as a family, we can't agree on one movie at all, right? So most family movie nights are a bit of a delicate dance as we're trying to thread the needle as to can we actually get agreement on one movie all together? And so really, as I was thinking through Romans 11 this morning, thinking back movies and kind of movies that I remembered, it really was the movie, the iconic series Toy Story that really stood out to me. Many of you know the storyline, many of you know the characters, but it really kind of comes through a lot of the vantage point and the perspective of the toys themselves, but particularly Woody. Woody lives with a constant fear of being abandoned. He lives with a constant jealousy of other toys that might show up in the home one Christmas or one birthday party because new toys means that his place in Andy, his owner's life, 
It could become questioned and could be uh, displaced. He constantly lives with this constant fear of abandonment and jealousy of all the other toys that could be in Andy's life, always wrestling with his place, always wondering whether Andy is going to abandon him at some point or time or not. Really, it's that idea of fear of abandonment and the idea of jealousy that will be two themes that are going to be woven into Romans chapter 11 as we jump into it this morning. As Paul looks at, walks us through this chapter, what we're going to see is that he's going to continue to discuss really the relationship that God has with the people of God of the Old Testament known as the nation of Israel. If you've been tracking with us through our series of the book of Romans, the end of Romans 8 ended with a huge proposition that Paul said. He said that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And then what we get in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is, in a sense, an aside. It's a response to, well, if, God, if there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, then someone, in a sense, could object and say, what about the ethnic people, the nation of Israel? Because as we look at them historically, it would seem as if God has, in a sense, put them on the sideline, as if God's done with them, as if there's no hope for them in the future. And so what Paul is doing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is addressing the relationship that God has with the nation of Israel. Particularly in chapter 9, Paul hits, in a sense, Israel's past. In chapter 10, Paul hits Israel's present. And here in chapter 11, what we're going to look at this morning, as he kind of culminates this three-chapter parenthetical section, he's going to look at uh, Israel's future. And as he addresses Israel's future, he's going to put to bed the question of Israel's relationship with God and whether they've been abandoned and whether they've been rejected. As we jump into chapter 11, what we're going to see is that God, Paul is going to give us a series of reasons for why there is hope for Israel's future. A series of reasons why we can know without a shadow of a doubt that God has not at all rejected his people, the nation of Israel. In fact, he's going to kind of walk through that, and he's going to answer a question that I would submit to you guys, a question that we're not really asking at all, right? I know there's modern-day events happening right now in Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip between the nation of Israel and Palestine, and that for those of us that are really tracking history, we're paying attention. But by and large, except for this little moment in time, the question of Israel's existence and God's relationship with Israel isn't necessarily a question that many of us are asking or paying attention to. So the question is going to be, as we look at Paul's re, uh, discussion about Israel's future and God's relationship with Israel, the question is, why does it matter to us at all? If God has rejected Israel, then how does that play out for us? If God hasn't rejected Israel, then how does that play out for us? What I want to submit to you as we look at chapter 11, and we're going to see all kinds of fascinating truths about eschatology and end-time events or even ecclesiology and what we believe about the church but at its very core, at its very essence, what a chapter 11 is going to hit on is this idea. That God is trustworthy and he can be taken for sure at the promises that he extends because he's loyal to his people and he's loyal and faithful to his promises. That whatever we're going to grasp from chapter 11 is going to end us right back at that same spot. That God is a trustworthy promise maker and he's faithful to fulfill his promises. And if he can be faithful to fulfill his promises that he made three to four millennia ago to the nation of Israel, then he's going to be faithful to fulfill his promises to you and I who have had much shorter history with him. If he's faithful to Israel, he can be trusted to be faithful to us in the midst of our life and our circumstances. So it's really going to be the reliability and the trustworthiness of God that's at stake as we look at chapter 11 as we walk through this discussion about God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Can God be trusted? Is God reliable? 
Is he loyal? Is he merciful? Is he faithful? That's where Paul is going to take us in chapter 11. Three reasons for why there's hope for Israel's future. And the first is this, that God is going to keep a believing remnant within the nation of Israel throughout all of human history. Let's pick it up in chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to read the first six verses as we kind of walk through this really rich and challenging section. Notice what he says in verse 1, picking up at the very beginning of chapter 11. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Verse 1 gives us the thesis to the section, the thesis, the thread that runs through these three chapters. The great question is, what about Israel? If God, if you cannot be separated from the love of God, then some would claim that Israel's been separated from the love of God. Paul goes on and says, may it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or you do not know what the scripture says in the uh, passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God tells him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there also came to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What is Paul saying? To the question of, has God rejected his people, the ethnic people of Israel, from the nation of Judah and the tribe of Israel? The question is, the answer is, may never be. God has not rejected his people. The question becomes, well, how do you know? How do we know that God has not rejected the ethnic people of Israel? Paul's answer, the first reason he's going to give us here in chapter 11 is because God has always kept within existence a group of those that are ethnically Jewish. And not just that he's kept in existence a group, but that within those that have been kept in existence, he's always kept a remnant, a group of those within that existence who are believing and have faith in God. Paul's going to give us a few examples of how we know this. Verse 1, Paul gives us his own personal example. He says, I, am a, I, I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. How do you want to know that God hasn't rejected his people? Paul says, look at me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in other places. He goes, if you want to know that God has kept those that are ethnically Jewish alive and believing, he says, look at me. But he goes beyond his personal example. He goes back to the Old Testament and he says, look at Elijah. Elijah was wondering in his day whether there were any who believed in God or whether all of them had fallen into idolatry. He goes back to the passage in 1 Kings 19 and he reminds us, as he reminded Elijah at the time, he goes, no, no. Not only are you still believing in me, but there are 7,000 within the tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel, that also believe in me that you don't even know. What Paul is doing in the present time as he looks at himself and as he looks backwards in the Old Testament, he says there's this thread that we see throughout history in which God is always preserving ethnic Israel as a people. And within that people, he's always preserving a remnant that believe in him and have faith in him. Today, we know that there are about 16 million ethnic Jews in the world. That's about 0.2% of the world's population. According to Jews for Jesus and other statistics out there, we know that there are about 175,000 Jews who actually believe in Jesus today. So even at the present time, we know that the nation of Israel or the ethnic people of Israel still exist. And within that 175, or within that 16 million that still exists, there are about 175,000 that actually still believe and have believed in Jesus today. 
The idea that Paul is hearing here in 11, chapter 11, the very beginning of it, is an idea and a truth that still exists and is applicable today. The, eth- the, ne- the ethnic people of Israel are still in existence, and within those that are still in existence, there's still a group that believe in Jesus. Really, it is the existence of the nation of Israel that I think is one of the greatest proofs for the existence of God. Think about all the Old Testament peoples that were, in a sense, enemies of the nation of Israel. Where are the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and all those different groups that, that were there in the Old Testament? Where are they today? They don't exist. You think about the Holocaust, you think about the Nazis and all the things that they endured, and the fact that this ethnic people still is in existence in human history, to me, is actually one of the greatest evidences for the evidence of God, for the existence of God. That God could extend promises to a people in the Old Testament that he's not yet fulfilled in fullness, and he's preserved them as a people throughout human history is one of the greatest evidences of his sovereignty and of his existence. It's not just of his existence, particularly I'm going to argue to you, it also shows us his loyalty. That as God keeps a believing remnant to a people that he had made promises to, what we also see from that is that he's loyal to his people. That God's loyal in the midst of human history. Thinking through this, I was thinking that even in my own self, that why would, if Israel wasn't going to have a future, then why would God even keep them around to begin with? Uh, my family and I, we just moved within the last month, and so we've spent months upon months cleaning out spaces in our house, putting boxes together, things that were going to be moved. We lived for about 12 years in the house that we've been in. We raised our, our kids were born, and we raised our kids there for the last 12 years of life, which means we have all kinds of stuff, right? For the last months, we've been going through closet after closet, drawer after drawer with one overarching question. Does it need to go to the new house or not, <laughs> And the amount of things that we've thrown away, the amount of things that we've given away just boggles our mind. But we kind of kept bringing it back to the question of if we haven't used it in the last two years and we're not going to use it in a new house, then why would we pack it up, take it with us to unpack it and not use it somewhere else? Why would we go through all that effort? The same question for me is a little bit about the nation of Israel. If God doesn't have a future for them and a part of them, a part of his plan for them in the future, then why continue to go through the effort to maintain them in existence? Their existence shows that there's a highlight, uh, uh, an arrow being pointed to their, their role and their place in a future that God has intended because he's kept them and preserved them. Not just preserved them in existence, but preserved some of them in faith as well. The existence of Israel today and the maintaining of a remnant of them to me also show, highlights the loyalty of God to his people. As you think about history, as you think about your circumstances, as you think about life today, I want to ask you the simple question, what is it that dominates you more? A sense of circumstantial uncertainty or a sense of God's loyalty to you if you know him? I'm a guy that likes to have a plan. I like to have everything in order. I like to have all my T's crossed, I's dotted, all the what ifs kind of laid out and thought through. There's few things that unnerve me and undo me like uncertainty. I'd rather know the bad thing than just not know whether it's good or bad at all, right? Just give me the bad thing, let's move on, let's just know what we're dealing with, and let's go. Waiting in uncertainty is one of the hardest things. I want to ask you in the midst of circumstances right now, even as you think about your own life, your week that's coming, or the season that you find yourselves in, what are the things that are grasping you and unnerving you that leave you kind of stuck in uncertainty? I want to ask the question, what would it look like if God's loyalty to you and your confidence in it was louder than what your uncertainty feels like to you at times? 
Because as I think about the nation of Israel in the midst of what felt like uncertainty of circumstances, where is God? What's happening to our nation? Where is he today? Uncertainty would have been all across the map for them. But what Paul is doing here and highlighting a future that's going to come is he's going to say that he's absolutely loyal to you. That his loyalty to you should be louder than what your circumstances and the uncertainty that you feel are saying to you and gripping you. That his loyalty to you should be louder than the uncertainty that you feel as you walk life out. Second thing we see from this passage is that not just that we can trust him, but that God is going to use Israel to bless the world. It isn't just that he's going to keep them around in existence, but he's also going to use them to bless the world. This is our second reason why we can have confidence that there's a future for Israel. Notice what he says in verse 7. We're going to pick it up again in verse 7. Notice what he says. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And then he says in verse 11, I say then they did not stumble so as the fall did they. What he's doing in verses 7 into 10 is highlighting what he's already said in chapter 9, which is that God will harden who he wants to harden. Uh, And because of that, in the midst of God's sovereignty, what we see is that the nation of Israel has been hardened. The reason why they've rejected Jesus, the reason why they're in the midst of their circumstances is because they've experienced a hardening. But what he does in chapter 11, which he didn't necessarily do in chapter 9, is he turns the corner to show us the result of it. What we're going to see in verses 11 to 15 is we're going to see that that hardening and the result of it were not just punitive, but they were in actuality redemptive. Notice what he says in verse 11. I say then, speaking of the nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Again, did they stumble and fall and therefore have been rejected for once and forevermore from God? Again, he says, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And if somehow I might move to jealousy of my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection will be the acceptance, uh, will, will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. What, what is Paul saying here in the midst of these comments, and even as he gets into this kind of tree and root and branches thing? What he's saying is that Israel's been hardened and they've disobeyed and they've disbelieved in their Savior and their Messiah. And they've experienced a hardening because of it, which he's going to explain a little bit more as we get to the end of the chapter. But in the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of their consequences that they're facing, God is still doing something through them that one might not have imagined unless you were paying attention. What Paul is saying here is that what he's doing through them, even in the midst of their disobedience and their disbelief, is this, that he's using them to bless the Gentiles, that their rejection of the gospel is part of what God used to bring about the gospel to the Gentiles for you and I and the church age today. His consequences that he bestows upon his loyal people that, he's belong, that he belongs to and that they belong to him is that he's not rejected them, he's loyal to them. But in his loyalty, the consequences that he provides them are not merely punitive, 
but they're actually redemptive. Because in the midst of their disobedience and disbelief, God will still use them to bring about a blessing to the entirety of the world, which is what God always wanted to do through the nation of Israel. I'm going to take you guys all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 as we're going to see what God says to the patriarch Abraham. Notice what he says in the promises that he extends to Abraham from whom we are going to get the nation of Israel. He says this to Abraham, go to land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, Genesis 15 form key passages of what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. An agreement God made with Abraham and his descendants in which he was promised to by himself that he would give to them a land with dimensions that they would live on, seed meaning descendants, a nation that would come forth from Abraham, and then lastly he promised that he would bless Abraham. And that blessing that he was going to give to Abraham had three elements to it. One of it was personal. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. You're going to be blessed. Your name is going to be great. Second of all, I'm going to make a nation from you, and that nation will be great. The second element of the blessing was that it was national. Not just personal, but also national. And then thirdly and lastly, what I want to highlight for our sake this morning was that it was also going to be universal. The part of the blessing that God wanted to give to Abraham and to his descendants was that they would be a conduit of blessing to the rest of the world. That God was going to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. This is what Paul is going to pick up on here in, in, in Romans. Is also what he's going to pick up on in Galatians chapter 3 when he says this. He says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In Galatians, Paul is kind of putting a bow on what began in, Romans, or in, in Genesis 12 to say this. That when God wanted to bless the entirety of the world through the nation of Israel, that part of what he wanted to do, the main thing that was in mind, in mind was this, that he was going to bring about justification of faith, eternal life, and the indwelling spirit as a blessing that was going to come forth through Israel to the world at large. But here's the problem that we have over and over again with the nation of Israel, is that when they were blessed, what did they do through their history? When they were blessed, they turned away and they forgot God. And when they forgot God, they began to suffer and struggle. And in their suffering and their struggling, they called out to God again. And what does God do? God returns to them, reconciles them, restores them in a relationship with him, and calls them to invite them to walk with him. And as they walk with him, they're blessed. And as they experience that blessing, they get into a cycle in which they then forget God and they turn away from God. And the marvelousness of what we're seeing in Romans 11 is this, though that in the midst of their turning away from their Savior that was given to them to fulfill all of the covenants, despite their disbelief, despite their disobedience, God still decides to use them to extend blessing throughout the whole world, even in and through their disobedience. Paul's point is, if God can do all of that through their disobedience, then how much greater will it be one day when they actually are reconciled and restored in relationship with him? If their disobedience brought all of this good, what could their obedience bring in the future? The point is being made over and over again. There is a point, there's a future for Israel. If there wasn't a future for Israel, we wouldn't look to a day in which they will be restored. Also, if there wasn't a future for Israel, then why in the world would we utilize Israel to bless the nations? What we see over and over again throughout the scriptures is that as God calls people and as people fail, there are consequences for our failure. But over and over again, if we are part of the people of God, God is going to work to bring about a restoration of us 
to fulfill the plan of God in our lives. Our mistakes and our failures don't thwart the plan of God, and they don't mean that we can't have a future role in the plan of God. Why? Not just because God's loyal, but also because God's merciful. In the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our failures, God doesn't turn away and is just totally done with us, right? God is going to work in and through us, even in the midst of our mistakes, to bring about the fulfillment of his plan. One of the things I love about Romans chapter 11 is that what we see is that God is merciful to his people even in their mistakes. If you're here this morning and you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then you have trusted in his payment on a cross that that paid the penalty for your sins so that he suffered the death that should have been yours. If you've made that decision, then you are in Christ Jesus, as Paul highlights here in Galatians 3. The spirit of God is yours. The indwelling spirit is yours. Forgiveness of sins is yours. And what we're getting from Romans 8 and Romans 9, 10, and 11 is this. That for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, our mistakes, our failures, even our disobedience do not sever our relationship with God. Because the promises that he made us about eternal life are unconditional. They're not on the basis of what we did, but on the basis of what his son Jesus Christ did. And so if we receive that gift freely, we cannot lose it on our basis of our performance. The preservation of our relationship with him is never based on our performance. It wasn't for Israel, and it isn't for us, because God is merciful to his people. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, one of the things I want to encourage you is if he is merciful, then we can confess our sins And he will work in the midst of our confession to bring about restoration. And our restoration to get back involved into the plan and the purposes of God that we're not sidelined forever in the midst of our sin. Confession means that we're not just reminded of the payment that Christ has already made for us. But confession brings about a restoration of the relationship so that we can get back involved into the things that God's called us to, to be a part of his plan and part of his purpose. How many of us are sitting on the sidelines buried because of past sins and past failures as if the mercy of God can't handle it? I want to remind you that the mercy of God is not a debit card with a low balance that can't handle our failures and our mistakes. It can more than handle our mistakes. It can more than handle our failures. All we have to do is confess and return and re-engage and move toward restoration. And the beauty of what we see by the end of chapter 11, the last thing that we're going to see is that Paul, in one of the most emphatic and powerful sections of the book of Romans, highlight the future restoration for the nation of Israel and what it's going to look like. Pick it up with me, if you will, in verse 23 as he highlights this. And notice what he says, beginning again in verse 23. Speaking in the nation of Israel, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Some of the verses I skipped over talks about the fact that when the nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, disbelieved, God broke those branches from the root off. And for the Gentiles that began to come into faith, he wrote, uh, kind of grafted us into a tree that was not fitting to our nature. And so what he says here at the end of 11 is that when those that were by nature a part of this tree or this root that were broken off, when they believe they can be rooted back in and grafted back in. It says, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? 
Is there a future for Israel? Absolutely. That when the nation of Israel, when an ethnic Israel comes back to faith, that they will be grafted back in. Verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 25 is a massively significant verse for us to understand what's happening in the book of Romans in these three chapters. Paul is saying you couldn't have understood it from the Old Testament. You couldn't have foreseen it. But what's happened currently to the nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, is that they are undergoing a partial hardening. That they've been hardened, which is why they're not coming to faith like the Gentiles are. But it's partial because not, it's not complete. There are some Jews that are coming to faith. We call them Messianic Jews, like we talked about at the beginning of the morning, a part of the remnant. But what he says is this partial hardening will be in place until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so there, Israel's rejection of Jesus led to the gospel coming to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles have all responded in full as God has intended, then we're going to get to the future plan of God for the nation of Israel. Notice what he says in verse 26, that when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and then so all Israel will be saved. Verses 25 and 26 give you a huge idea of what's going to happen in the future and what's happening right now. The ethnic people of Israel rejected their Messiah because of their rejection. The gospel went to the Gentiles and the church was established from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. As the church is established with men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as the church fills up and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, what does that fullness look like? How many is that? I have no idea. <laughs> but what Paul is saying is once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. Is there a future for the nation of Israel? Absolutely. How do we know? Because Paul says that right now they're undergoing a partial hardening, but a time is going to come when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and then he will pivot back, and we're going to see a mass repentance at a national level for the ethnic people of Israel. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 11, verse 26. In fact, he picks this up a little bit uh, if we look at verse uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah speaking of a future day. I love this Old Testament verse, this Old Testament prophecy. He says, a future day is going to come when I will pour out on the house of David, on the inheritance and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the spirit of grace so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Zechariah in the Old Testament, looking forward to the future, was recognizing a day was going to come when the Spirit of God would be poured out on ethnic Israel. And at that point in time, as the Spirit was poured out on ethnic Israel, they would then look on whom they have, on whom they have pierced, but this time they would look and they would receive him. Of course, Zechariah didn't have an understanding of the biblical timeline events that we do now. He didn't realize that there would be a first coming and then there would be a second coming. So how do we put all this together in a really quick way uh, for us, uh, it looks like this, all right? We've done a whole sermon series on this uh, timeline. I don't have nearly the amount of time to unpack this for you guys this morning, but this gives you a little sense of how this is all put together. Uh, the cross shows the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that opens up the Jews rejecting Jesus, the gospel then going to the Gentiles, and the, that's what we call the church age. Uh, we've got a timeline with a squiggly line because we have no idea how long the church age will last. We don't know when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We don't know how that will look or how long that will last, but at some point we know that's going to happen, and then we're going to get into a period that we refer to as the tribulation. It's a seven-year period. If you look at Daniel 9, it's also, also referred to what we refer to as the 70th week in Daniel 9. 
In these 70 weeks in the book of Daniel, they were decreed and intended for the nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, to be prepared for their Messiah. And so as we look at this timeline, what we see is the church being raptured out before the tribulation begins, because the tribulation is eventually, the second half of it, going to be a period of wrath and difficulty. And what Daniel 9 is saying about this tribulation period is that this is going to be a period of time that will prepare national ethnic Israel to receive their king. This difficulty is not a difficulty the church needs to endure because they've already come to Christ. And so we recognize and we believe here as a church that they will be raptured out before the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period of time. By the end of it, uh, the Antichrist will have broken a treaty. There will be all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of hostilities, all kinds of suffering for the nation of Israel. But that period and those historical events will prepare them so that when Jesus returns at the second coming, this time they will look on whom they have pierced. And this time they'll receive him. At this point in time, at the end of the tribulation of the second coming is when we imagine that all Israel will be saved. In which we're going to have national, in a sense, scale repentance. All Israel doesn't mean every single person, but all Israel represents a generality about the nation at large that is true then and not true now. Right now, not all Israel is being saved. We have a hardening and a minuscule piece of them that are coming to faith. But a day is going to come in which that hardening will be removed and they will respond at a national level to the coming of Jesus Christ, who then establishes a thousand-year kingdom as he promised to the nation of Israel in, in 2 Samuel 7, as we see described in Revelation chapter 20. And so really, if you look at the timeline of biblical events, your Old Testament is a little bit like act one of a play in which the main character on the stage is the nation of Israel. Act two, in a sense, is your New Testament in which the main actor on the stage is the church. It's you and I. And what you have happening in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and 11 is we're in act two and they're saying, what happened to the character in act one? Is he coming back in the future or is he done in this play? Has he been killed off, in a sense? And what we see from the book of Revelation and what Paul is doing in Romans 11 is saying that in Act 3 that's going to come, Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, we're going to have the main character of Act 1 and the main character of Act 2 back on the stage this time together. The church returns in Act 3 after being raptured. They return with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. And in the millennial kingdom, the nation of Israel has been prepared. This time they respond in faith and they're going to be present and ruling with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Act 3 has the main character of Act 1, the nation of Israel returning. It also has Act 2, the main character of Act 2, the church returning. And we're going to see the church and we're going to see Israel together in the end times. I'm doing all that really quickly so you can see how it all folds together because the question of Romans 11 is this. Is there hope for Israel? Is there hope for ethnic Israel? Paul is unequivocal to say, absolutely. Absolutely there's hope. He's preserved a remnant of them in all of human history periods of time. He's used them to bless the nations, even in their disobedience. And ultimately and lastly, the final clue, the final answer that kind of nails the coffin shut is he's going to fulfill his promises to them in the future when they respond in faith and are part of end-time events. The church has not replaced Israel. The church will be alongside of Israel, ethnic Israel, in the future. And God will bring about a fulfillment of all of his Old Testament promises to them that he has yet to fulfill, that he will then fulfill to them in the future.
That's Romans 11, as quick as we could go, all right? Why does it matter? For me, it's this, and it's simple. If God can work through human history in such a way to bring about the nation of Israel, who he made promises to three to four millennia ago, back into a future moment in time in human history in which he'll bring fulfillment to all of that, if he can orchestrate human history over multiple millennia like that, with the rise and falls of empires, the rise and falls of kings, the individual choices of billions upon billions of people, then I think he can handle you and I, our individual life and our small circumstances. They don't seem small to us. We wonder where God is. We wonder what God is doing. We feel like God is silent at times and seasons. The uncertainty of things we want to know unnerves us. We wonder why God is slow to act. And for me, Romans 11 is an incredible reminder that God is loyal to his people, he's merciful to his people, and he's sovereign in their lives in a way that he can be trusted even in the midst of our own uncertainty and the passivity and the fear that we feel as we so often feel like maybe we've been abandoned as well. Because if God could see and if God could hear, then where is he in the midst of what I'm walking through? It feels like he's silent. The test case of Israel is an incredible reminder that if God can orchestrate human history for them in that way, then he can orchestrate human history in a way that will be for our good and for his glory as well. If he can do this at that level, then I know that he can work in a smaller level with my own individual life and it'll be just fine. I don't always know how it's going to work out. I don't always know what it's going to look like, but I know that he's loyal to his people. He's merciful to his people. He's faithful to fulfill his promises to his people, and he's sovereign over all circumstances and over all details in our life. So we can trust him. We're going to end this morning where we began in worship. The end of chapter 11, I don't have time to walk it through, but we'll, we'll talk about how un, uh, incomparable are the heights and the knowledge of God. The end of chapter 11 parks us in a place where we're reminded yet again of how little we know and how marvelous is the wisdom, the grandeur, and the sovereignty of God. It parks us in a place that we're meant to lift our eyes and our gaze heavenly to who he is and what he's done and respond in worship and awe. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have an opportunity to respond in worship this morning.